Hey everyone. Well, it's been a week. Seeing the images of white supremacists and Nazis marching in Virginia would have been bad enough. Listening to them give voice to their repugnant, degenerate hatred would distress any rational human being. But seeing the violence, seeing men and women beaten by cowards and thugs, seeing a terrorist drive their car into a group of peaceful protesters, murdering a young woman, injuring a score or more of others. It's horrible. My middle daughter is moving to Virginia in a couple of days, oddly enough. She could have been in that crowd. She's the kind of young woman who would go and march, who would hold up a sign, who would protest, who would stand up. And it could have just as easily been her who was run down by that coward. And to know that it's not over, to know that there will be more violence, there will be more terrorist attacks by white supremacists and Nazis. They have been emboldened by the goon administration that currently occupies the White House, who seems entirely unwilling to tamp down the flames that they stoked in order to gain their position in the leadership of this country, who fed the hatred that is now more vocal than any other time I can remember in my life. As I said, it's disgusting, it's distressing, and disheartening. And I see things that give me hope. I see how many people show up in Boston today to offset the hatred. Their numbers dwarfing those of the so-called freedom of speech rally by tens of thousands. I see in Charlottesville the images and stories of the group of clergy who linked arms, who stood in between the un-American white supremacist Nazis and those peaceful protesters. These clergy locked arms to form a barrier of faith. And when the violence began, it was the clergy who not only helped those who had been injured, but also shielded others with their own bodies to protect them. Shielding medical workers who were being attacked even as they were trying to help the injured. The clergy putting themselves in between hatred and those who sought to undo the effects of that hatred. I know I say harsh things about religion, but those people are heroes. Those people are devout, sincere, and they have integrity. They, they have my respect and my love. So what do you do? I know I like to give you easy answers like donate some money, donate a little bit of your time, and... If you go to the show notes at findyourgods.com this week, you'll find ways that you can donate to the victims of the people who were attacked in Charlottesville. But 
it's time to do more than just donate some money. Here's what you can do. This is your homework. In addition to donating money, I want you to get out. I want you to go out of your house and I want you to talk to people. Connect with other people, with strangers. In stores and shops and restaurants, on the street, in the park, connect with another human being and say, how's your day going? How are you doing? Put humanity and empathy and compassion back on the radar screen. Show someone else that you're interested and you care. Find a human connection because that is how we defeat these inhuman monsters. And it's time to join the resistance. It's time to show up, make a sign, join a march, and be prepared. Be prepared for whatever might happen. Be prepared to stand up, to talk back, to defend yourself and your ideals, to fight back if needed. And don't forget, as we see every single time, there are more of us than there are of them. Our numbers get bigger every year, and their numbers get smaller. The hatred might get more potent. It might be more concentrated, and it might fight hard against being pulled out of our society the way a demon fights hard as it is being dragged out of an innocent victim. But it will be dragged out. So show up, stand up, speak up. All right, let's get started. Now, now, now shall I tell of things that change? New being out of old. Since you, O oh gods, O oh gods, created mutable, created mutable arts, created mutable arts and gifts, arts and gifts. Give me the voice, the voice, the voice. Give me the voice, the voice to tell the shifting, shifting, the shifting story of the world. Every night when she goes to bed, my youngest will make sure that she always has her stuffed rabbit with her. She's got plenty of stuffed animals, but the rabbit is special. She got it from a family friend when she was pretty young, and she sleeps with it every night. If for some reason it ends up downstairs or somewhere else in the house, before she goes to bed, we have to find Bunny. That's what she calls it, Bunny. It has a proper name. She named it Carrots, originally. But now it's just Bunny. And it's special. It's important to her. 
It's not uncommon for a little kid to have a security object of some kind. My middle child had a little stuffed lavender bear that she called purpley. Her older brother had a tiger that he named Hobbs. And for each one of my kids, even though they had a lot of different kinds of stuffed animals and toys, those particular stuffed animals were important to them. In fact, they still are. I texted my middle daughter a question tonight asking her if she still had purpley. She's 18 now, she lives on her own, and I wasn't surprised when she replied and said, yeah, I do. I know my son, who's almost 23, still has Hobbs. He's in grad school, but he held on to this artifact just like his sister held on to her purple bear, and just like I know their younger sister will most likely hold on to her bunny named Carrots. When I was a kid, one of my favorite books was The Velveteen Rabbit. I would read it over and over again, and saying this out loud now, I realized that that was one of the first times when the idea of something imaginary becoming alive was made real to me. And I've been thinking a lot about this tendency of ours to put meaning and personality into objects. Actually, I've been thinking about it for quite a while. I've been thinking about it ever since the uh, episode about Pygmalion and Galatea. This idea of making something and investing your energy and your creativity and your imagination into it and it coming to life. I've been thinking about it a lot, actually, for quite a while. Originally in that episode, there was a long section about idols and idolatry. But it was a little bit more off-topic than what I usually do, so I cut it out. I figured I'd get back to it sooner or later, and, well, it's later now. I don't know if any of my kids have any kind of personality or persona developed around their respective stuffed animals. I don't think any of them ever talked to their stuffed animals or treated them like a, a friend or a, a real thing. But what's interesting to me is that because of who I am, and because of the weird way my brain works, I have imbued each one of those stuffed animals with fairly distinct personalities. Each one is different, just like each one of my kids is different. Now, I don't necessarily talk to them or think that they're, quote, real, unquote, but I can't help Note the tendency in my own mind when I think about carrots or purpley or hobs to think about them as not just objects but separate entities.
Hobbes has a very specific kind of personality. He's sort of quiet, playful. Purpley is very, very patient and loving and supportive. And Carrots, I'm still getting to know, but Carrots seems very responsible, reliable. She's, she's got a good head on her shoulders. Now, lest you make too many assumptions, these don't necessarily line up with the personalities of my three children. I suspect in some ways they line up with the things that I probably subconsciously think each one of my three children needs in their life or needed when they were young. I honestly don't know. But I'm interested in the mechanism inside my own brain and inside our brain as human beings. What is it about us that makes us assign personalities to objects? I've heard it said that the earliest gods were natural gods. They were gods of stones and trees and hills and streams. They were personalities that were attached to specific locales or specific objects in the environment. And over time, they developed more personality. They developed names. Rituals were built around them. They gathered traditions and rituals around them like a magnetic pole. And you could argue pretty easily that these are just ignorant people, childlike, in their lack of sophistication or scientific knowledge, who are just filling in the mental gaps that exist in their understanding of the world with comforting ideas, much like a child holds on to their stuffed animal at night to keep the bad dreams at bay. So too ancient people, and let's be honest, modern people, do the same with their gods. That's a fair point. I don't dispute that. That's what we do. And if we don't do it with our gods, we do it with our spouses. We do it with our jobs. We do it with anything that gives us comfort or value or worth. Now, worth is an interesting word, and it reminds me of my father. My dad's a pastor. I think I've mentioned that before. And I can remember once in a sermon or a Sunday school lesson, he was talking about the idea of worship. And if I recall correctly, what he said was that the word worship actually comes from the word for worth. So that when we talk about worshiping someone, what we're really saying is that we are doing two things. One, imbuing worth into them, but also identifying them as something that gives us worth. We are finding worth-ship in them, in our relationship with them. Now, my dad's always been a bit old school, and he believed, and I suspect still believes, that the idea of worship is a 
pretty precious one, and that God, his God, is a jealous God. And for my dad, God doesn't like other things getting the worship that he is due. So when God's followers put all of their time and their effort and energy into their job, or into their boyfriend or girlfriend, or into their financial status, if those are the things that they derive their worth from, then God will get a little bit frustrated and remind them of where their focus and worship should be directed, namely back towards him. And these little reminders from God can take a number of different forms. You lose your job. You have your boyfriend or girlfriend or your husband or your wife leave you. You lose everything on the stock market. Your health goes downhill. Your family falls apart. And my dad believed, and again, I suspect still believes, that by doing that, you are creating an idol for yourself, something that you worship instead of the one true God. And the one true God doesn't take kindly to that and will tip over any idols that are a threat to his worship. Now, there's a lot in there to unpack. First of all, just thinking about this tendency that we have, whether it's stuffed animals or trees or statues, to want to anthropomorphize or personalize those things. We, we essentially want to have a relationship with them. We want there to be something bigger than ourselves, and we want to connect with it. It seems that that is hardwired into our DNA, or at least a lot of us. There may be people who resist it. There may be people who, who genuinely feel that it is backwards and regressive or infantile. Again, hard to argue. But that doesn't change the fact that we still do it. We've been doing it for, as near as we can tell, our entire existence. And there's not necessarily any indication that we won't continue to do it. The idea of atheism is not new. It's not something that happened in modern times or in the Enlightenment. There were atheists in ancient Rome and Greece, in Egypt. Maybe it's more acceptable now to talk about those things, but they've always been with us just as much as this tendency to believe has always been with us. But I digress. It's interesting to me on a number of different levels, this tendency to create something or take something and create personality within it. What came first? When you have an object, let's say a statue of a man wearing a flat, rounded helmet with wings on the side. If you have that, if you were the first person to make that image? Did you make it because there was something out there that already existed and 
you were compelled to give it form, to give it an entry into this reality. Or, by creating it, by making it, did you bring something to life that didn't exist before? It goes back to the bumper sticker that I've seen a few times, which is, man created God, not the other way around. Now, I know what I choose to believe, but your results may vary. One of the other things that that makes me think of is, well, really, it's a desire to go back to some of the sources. For instance, the word idol. Where does it come from? What does it mean? If my research is correct, then the word idol originally comes from a Greek word, eidolon, which means a mental image, an apparition, or a phantom. Um, It could also mean a material, physical image, like a statue. And even there, in the definition of the original word in Greek, There's a blurring of the lines between things of the imagination and things that have physical form and reality. And I appreciate that ambiguity. Over time, the the word came to take on different meaning, mainly negative. The, The Jews and later the Christians and the Muslims in the earliest Judeo-Christian religions, the word idol was used to describe a false god or an image of a false god. It's a derogatory, negative word, and though not unexpected, that in any polytheistic culture that I've looked at, there were no issues with idols, that is, with people making physical representations of their gods. There were, in some cultures, very specific practices you had to go through in order to create that image. But there wasn't a problem with creating the image itself. It wasn't seen as somehow disrespectful, quite the opposite. But what's interesting is in the monotheistic religions, when they begin to appear one of the core fundamental tenets of their belief system is that you shouldn't create an image of a god, any god, at all. And I've puzzled over this. I think it's interesting that the injunction against any kind of, for lack of a better word, idolatry, is a hallmark of monotheism. It's not surprising that it would be that way given that it's one of the first of the commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain on the stone tablets. And actually, I've got it right here. The book of Exodus, chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Yeah, God doesn't fuck around. So, for Jews and Christians and Muslims, idols are bad. They're pretty consistent about this, and they're consistent with each other for the most part. Each of those religions view idols as blasphemy, and they have pretty strict laws against it. Now, it's probably no surprise to hear that Islam has a total and complete prohibition against idols. In fact, in a true monotheistic, competitive way, Sharia law demands not just the abhorrence of idols, but the actual destruction of all idols. It says, in part, quote, Not only do we not worship those hollow forms, but we will ensure that others do not worship them as well. You've probably seen this in action over the past few years. It's been in the news. The Islamic State and the Taliban have gone around to holy sites of antiquity and they've laid waste to archaeological artifacts and statues and temples, destroying, wiping out any evidence of other religions or other gods. The Arabic word for idolatry is shirk. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It literally means to share or set up a partnership. In Islam, it is an unforgivable sin to go into partnership with other gods or put them on equal footing with Allah. They won't just blow up your temple and smash your statues. They'll put you to death. This is from the book of Exodus. Chapter 22, verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Not surprisingly, this is a sentiment to some degree shared by Christianity. But there's also a tension in Christianity between their use of representation and the prohibition against idolatry. As a strongly monotheistic religion, they broadened the definition of idolatry beyond mere idols to include the ephemeral. Like I said before, in the Christian doctrine, anything that you place above God in terms of importance is going to be an idol. In the Catholic Catechism, it says, quote, Man commits idolatry whenever he honors and reveres a creature in place of God putting the creation before the Creator. This is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 1. Do not make idols, or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves, and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down to it. I am the Lord your God. Which proves somewhat problematic. 
because on one level or another, icons or idols play an important role in the daily worship in the Protestant and Catholic churches. They have images of Christ. They have stained glass windows. They have crucifixes. They have icons of the saints. But in their framework, this isn't contradictory. As St. Basil said, the honor given unto the image is transferred to the prototype, meaning whatever you direct towards the icon or idol is transferred to the actual source. As above, so below, and vice versa. That's literally the definition of sympathetic magic. The image is the thing itself. The idol is God, which I guess in their world makes it okay because their prototype, their original, is the one true God. There is no other God, according to their religion. Now, in Hinduism, this concept of the idol representing the object of worship is a key tenant of their faith. Their rituals are well populated with all manner of idols. Uh, they call them murti. And they are seen as a direct method of communication with their deity. Like the word idolon, the word murti means embodiment. That is, the representation or the disposition of a given deity. And when they create these idols, they have to follow very strict guidelines in terms of the clothes and posture and design and gesture and proportion for it to be acceptable. And ultimately, the idol is not worthy of worship until the divine spirit has been invoked into it in order to receive that worship the idol actually becomes the thing to be worshipped. It becomes a vessel, not an avatar. I suspect many Catholics and Protestants are doing the same thing, whether they realize it or not. After all, it's in our nature to make things, bring them to life, and then worship. Now, no religion starts perfectly formed from nothing. They are influenced by what's come before. They pick up influences from other cultures. They evolve and change over time. Anybody who says any differently is either ignorant or deliberately misleading themselves and others. It's what we do as a people. So, for instance, in Catholicism, there are a lot of influences from ancient pagan religions. They're also there in the Anglican and Episcopal churches. And it's hard sometimes for them to maintain a balance between declaration and veneration in their worship spaces, which is to say they have these images, but they have to be careful not to let the images eclipse what they're meant to represent. And while the crucifix is so prevalent in the Catholic religion, sometimes bordering on the grotesque in terms of its realism, 
all of those plaster saints and stained glass windows, all those icons are the offshoot of an older practice of creating a cold image, an idol, a human-made object to be worshipped. Of course they are. It's kind of crazy to think otherwise. After all, it's in our nature to do this. Originally, these icons, these cold images, as they were called, were not displayed in public areas. But whether they were kept in another place or a sanctuary, if you will, after all, sanctuary means kept apart, it's a bit of a problem for some branches of the Christian church because they still engage in a physical representation of their deity and their saints. And yet they would say they don't believe in idols, they don't worship idols, and how dare you suggest otherwise. Now, there are parallels here to themes in Hellenic worship where the central altar of the house, the one upon which the household gods are represented, venerated, and worshipped, this altar is not meant to be displayed in public areas of the house, but it was supposed to be kept apart in a place where the family could pray, where they could leave offerings and pour out libations in private, out of the gaze of society or visitors. Now, it's not uncommon in Catholicism for icons of the saints or Mary, Mother of Christ, or of Jesus himself to be sequestered away in smaller alcoves, out of sight and out of reach of the congregation in a church. There's a long tradition of priesthood serving as a medium between the gods and the people. In some versions of the Pygmalion story, for instance, Pygmalion isn't an artist. He isn't a king. He's a priest. Priest of Aphrodite. And some might argue, when he creates his ideal woman out of ivory, he is embodying the goddess that he worships. There are some versions of the story that say that this priest was so in love with his goddess that he devoted himself to her and was rebuffed. She did not return his physical entreaties and, shall we say, physical intimacy was not forthcoming. So the priest decided to take matters into his own hands and fashion a simulacrum of the goddess, something that he could control. And let's not forget that in every version of the story, Pygmalion hides his idol away. He hides it from the eyes of the world, and he worshipped it in the privacy of his bedroom. Now, in the Jewish faith, their prohibition against representational imagery of any kind, at least in the Orthodox tradition as I understand it, is just as impeachable as it is in Islam. As I understand it, true Orthodox Jews don't hold to any 
representational artwork. They take that commandment that I read to be literal, don't make a picture of anything on the earth, under the earth, or in the sea, or in the heavens. Don't make a likeness of it at all. And yet, there are a few episodes in the Jewish faith where you can see a little bit of a tension between the idea of not creating a representation and yet a representation existing. The most famous story probably is what happens after the Israelites escape Egypt and are wandering in the wilderness. They're led by Moses under the direction of God, and they end up at the foot of Mount Zion. Moses goes up the mountain to communicate with God. While he's up there, God transcribes the Ten Commandments. Now, apparently, this process took a while. And in Moses' absence, the people grew restless and began to lose faith. They went to Moses' brother, Aaron, who was the high priest, and they said to him, Moses is dead. And God, if he existed at all, has abandoned us. Do something. And they asked Aaron, their high priest, to make them a new God that they could follow and worship. Now, they'd just come out of Egypt. They'd come out of a culture where worshiping of idols was very commonplace, and there was no Ten Commandments yet, so they didn't have anything to say, don't do this. So it was perhaps completely understandable. We need a God. And to be fair, Aaron, by all accounts, was a bit of a pushover, and he gave in to the demands of his people. He told them to bring him all of the gold jewelry that they had, This could call to mind the televangelists and their calls for money, but no, Aaron didn't run off with the loot. He took all of that gold and he melted it down. And he fashioned for them an image, an idol of a golden calf. Now, why a golden calf? We don't really know for sure. Now, I do know that in Egyptian mythology, there was a god, Apis or Hapis, that was a bull or a calf. And it was a very important god in Egypt. Possibly one of the most important gods. There are some scholars who believe it was the first Egyptian god. And, like many gods in that region and culture, it was a fertility god, an agricultural god. So it's not surprising that the people of Israel, wandering in the wilderness with very little food, with a leader who has abandoned them, with a god who has gone silent, would say, we need a new god, let's use the old one. That seemed to work for those guys. After all, they were doing pretty good when we were their slaves. So, Aaron made a golden calf. 
And, of course, when Moses finally came back, he was enraged. He cursed the people for their lack of fidelity and faith, although it's important to note that when he showed up again, they were in the middle of their big worship ceremony, which was, by all accounts, an orgy. So maybe he just felt left out. The Israelites lost faith in their unseen God and sought a more tangible comfort and presence. So they created an idol for themselves, and it was just bad luck that one of the commandments written on the stone tablets that Moses brought back down from the mountain directly forbid this. So here comes Moses down the mountain after being gone for 40 days and 40 nights, communing directly with their God, watching as their God transcribed his commandments into two stone tablets. And now Moses has to lug them back down the mountain to his people. And when he gets there, they've completely abandoned him and their God and they're having an orgy in front of a golden calf. As Mark Twain would say, let the curtain of charity now close upon the scene. The commandment is pretty clear. Don't make an image of anything in heaven above, on the earth below, or in the waters beneath. But as strong as that prohibition is, a few idols do manage to sneak into Judaism in the history of the Israelites. And I don't just mean the golden calf. The other, maybe most notable or familiar idol is an image that moviegoers of a certain age will immediately recognize. Picture it in your mind, a gold box or a casket about the size of a coffee table. And on top, Posed on the lid are two golden angelic beings bowing, their wings outstretched, touching in the center. And the image is the Ark of the Covenant, which, as you all know, was found by Indiana Jones and the government of the United States put it into a warehouse for safekeeping in Trenton, New Jersey. That spot at the top of the Ark of the Covenant where the tips of the wings meet, is called the mercy seat. And so tradition tells us that is where God's presence was concentrated and manifest. But by definition, those two figures are idols. They're not graven images. They weren't carved. They're molten images. They're made out of gold, but still, the other episode of idolatry in the history of the Israelites comes in a curious episode that's detailed in the book of Numbers. Once again, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, and their provisions have run out, and they've begun to grumble yet again against Moses and Jehovah. And their complaints are understandable. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? 
to die in this wilderness. There is no bread. There is no water. It doesn't seem like an unreasonable complaint. I've seen people lose it in a restaurant when their waiter forgot to bring them their side of ranch. But God doesn't take it lightly. And rather than explain himself, rather than send them bread or water or comfort, God sends venomous snakes among the people to bite them, to punish them for their grumblings. And many people died. So the people come back to Moses and they apologize, which probably seems advisable at that point. And they ask Moses to pray to God to deliver them from this plague of serpents. And this is what the Lord says to Moses. Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who was bit by a serpent may look on it and live. Now, Moses doesn't say back to God, hey, wait a minute, what about that whole graven images thing? Because clearly the Ten Commandments don't apply to God. Read your Old Testament, you'll see what I mean. But Moses does what he's told. He fashions a snake out of bronze, and he raises it up on a pole, and as the story has it, anyone who looks on it is completely cured. Now, Christians look at that story and they try to retcon their own beliefs into it. They see the story of the bronze serpent as foreshadowing of Christ on the cross. The idea that this, this pole holding up a snake is somehow equated with the sacrifice of Christ delivering people from torment, it's a stretch. And besides, equating Christ with a serpent seems specious at best, given the usual diabolical associations assigned to the image of the snake, but maybe I'm splitting hairs. However, it seems to me that the serpent on a stick, which is easily the worst food you can get at the Iowa State Fair, the serpent on a stick, to my eyes, it's an obvious reference to either Asclepius, who was the son of Apollo and the first physician, or to Hermes, both of whom carried staffs intertwined with serpents. You know the symbol. It's on every hospital and ambulance in the world. And actually, the dual serpents on the winged staff as a symbol for Hermes is a mistake when it's applied to hospitals. Somebody equated that with the symbol for Asclepius, the single snake on a staff, which again is some of the worst porn you're ever going to see. But I digress. So even in Judaism, their own God says, in essence, make an idol. Now, while that's pretty darn interesting that God goes against one of his own commandments and says, make an idol, that's not the most interesting thing to me. The most interesting thing to me is that it worked. The people were healed. I've mentioned the writer Alan Moore on this show before, and actually his friend Steve Moore, no relation, 
was discussed at some length in the Pygmalion episode. Steve Moore was a writer and somewhat of a mentor to Alan Moore. Now, most people know Alan Moore for his writing in the comic world. He wrote Watchmen. He wrote From Hell. He wrote The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and Swamp Thing, among others. But at a certain point in their relationship, Alan and Steve were starting to explore the mystical world behind their writing. And each in their own ways, they were looking for entry points into deeper levels of understanding of the unseen world. And Steve, by all account, was a few steps ahead of Alan. And Alan said at one point, and I'm paraphrasing, I just don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I think I've found a God that I can worship, but I don't quite know how to make that happen. And Steve Moore thought about it for a minute and said, well, maybe you should make an idol, paint a picture, carve something. And Alan Moore said, do you think that would work? And Steve said, it must work. Otherwise, why would they have a commandment prohibiting it? There is a paradox inherent in idolatry, in worshiping something that you've made with your own hands. The figure crafted by Pygmalion is a cult image. It fits all of the hallmarks. It is handmade, and it was hidden away where only the creator could interact with it. There develops a fetishistic relationship between the creator and the idol where physical intimacy becomes a crucial and deeply personal aspect of daily worship. The idea that we own what we make, that we control the output of our efforts, is deeply paternalistic. In the ancient world, they would sometimes wrap their idols in chains to control their gods. And then it became more about controlling access, moving them to sanctuaries and alcoves and private chambers and private altars. From an anthropological point of view, when we moved from hunter-gatherer society, which was predominantly matriarchal, to an agrarian society, which was the beginning of a paternalistic shift, some of these ideas of personal ownership were contrasted and at odds with the idea of social or community ownership. But the personal ownership took root once the source of paternity was identified in the female. That is, once they understood that it was the man who got the woman pregnant, they demystified the idea of conception and childbirth. Which is to say, they could look at a baby and say, that's mine. It came from me. And that's when ownership became one of the key pillars of 
human civilization. As a concept, it changed how we thought about the land that we lived on. It changed how we thought about our spouses or our children. It changed the way that we thought about our own names. This idea of personal ownership changed the way that we thought about our gods. I had an experience recently along these lines. As some of you probably know, there's a board on Pinterest called Find Your Gods, and I post pictures to it from time to time. Little things that I find as I'm going through my research or things that strike me as being somewhat on topic. Now, there's a website, and it's a good website. They do a very good job. In fact, I used to link to it on the resources page at findyourgods.com. But I took it down recently because of what happened a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, I got a number of notices one day from Pinterest, about 25 or 30 of them. And Pinterest was letting me know that someone had lodged a complaint against images that I had pinned saying that they owned the copyright. Now, every single one of these images was an image from classical mythology. They were images of mosaics, of pottery, of statues. There was nothing exclusive about them. These artifacts are thousands of years old. But they were mostly from this website. And this website had put a watermark on every single picture that they posted. And not all of these pictures were pictures they had taken but they were claiming ownership of these pictures. And so Pinterest took them off my board, and I was kind of pissed off about it. First of all, because it's bad marketing. By sharing those images, I'm promoting the work that they're doing. I'm linking to their site. These things all have value for them. But more importantly, they don't own these pictures. They're claiming ownership of something. They're claiming ownership of the gods themselves. They're saying, you can't use that picture of Hermes. That's my picture of Hermes. That's my picture of Hera or Persephone. As if they can chain those gods, as if they can brand them as their own. It's deeply offensive to me. Earlier this year, the author Neil Gaiman released a book on Norse mythology. And it's his retelling of those ancient myths. It's a pretty good book. But there were people on his Facebook page complaining to him because he was appropriating their gods. Now, on one level, I can understand that. I can understand people who are deeply devoted to these gods feeling a little bit off-put by the idea that this writer is coming in and telling his own version of the stories. But on the other hand, I don't know that Neil Gaiman's doing anything except expanding the understanding and awareness of their gods, and how can that be a bad thing? And I'm reminded along those same lines of a debate 
that I saw on one of the Hellenic religion Facebook pages that I follow, where there was a heated debate saying that unless you were genetically Greek, you were unable to worship the Greek gods. Unless you or your family came from Greece, it was actually an insult and a sacrilege for you to worship those gods. Now, I view this as nothing more than an offshoot of the repugnant nationalism that's crept up in all parts of the world, it seems, over the past few years. People trying to protect themselves from assimilation or immigration or just erosion of their own culture. Despite the fact that their own culture has played a part in eroding and assimilating the cultures of others for thousands of years. But the idea that I own the gods and you don't really kind of irritates me. Because who would say to someone, no, 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 you're not allowed to worship my God. No, 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 no. You don't qualify to worship Athena. I mean, let's look at it from the God's point of view. Do you think Athena or Zeus or Osiris or Jesus are turning away worshipers who come to them with sincere, devout hearts? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Honestly, sometimes the prejudices and restrictions of these organized religions, well, they're really revolting because they seem to go against the entire ideals that they pretend to profess. And I don't mean to paint everyone with the same brush. Most of the people I know are monotheistic, and they think I'm kind of crazy. And that's okay. I'm used to it. But I don't get why there's that built-in competitiveness, that desire to not let people just believe what they believe, but to actually actively go after them. I know some people who feel like it is their responsibility to tell the message of Christ to everyone they see, and if they don't, then that person might go to hell and it's all on them. And that seems super arrogant to me. I don't have a solution to that problem. But I don't have to. Because it's not necessarily my problem. I have my gods. I know what I've chosen to believe. I'm not interested in proselytizing or converting people over to the worship of my personal gods. Not at all. I'm not setting up an idol for other people to worship. I have my altar. It's for me and no one else. I don't have any answers. I don't know why we're wired to do these things. I don't know why we need 
physical representations of the things that we worship or love. You can extend it throughout our lives. It's not just idols. It's photographs of our family, photographs of moments in our lives that we found meaningful. It's artwork that captures something that we can't articulate about our own souls. It's the object that comforted us as a child. We infuse these things with meaning, with personality. We give them worth, and in some cases, we derive our worth from them. I understand why it's threatening to people who believe that their God is the only God, but I don't have much sympathy for them. After all, it's only human. It's only God's. That's our show. We'll be back soon with the final episode in the story of Orpheus, but until then, thank you for listening. Take care of each other, and may your gods bless you. Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. Not that that means you should have heard of me before now. The music on today's show was created by the 10,000 Things, and you can learn more about them and download their music 
on Bandcamp.com. The rest of this show's contents, unless otherwise noted, are the creation and property of TM Camp and may not be copied, transmitted, transcribed, or otherwise reproduced in any medium or format, including hand puppets or flannel graphs, without his express written permission. Failure to comply is really kind of a dick move, and honestly, aren't you better than that? Visit us online at findyourgods.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash findyourgods. We're also on Facebook, which is where, honestly, most of the conversation happens at facebook.com slash findyourgods. And if you want to, you can find us on Pinterest and Tumblr and Instagram, because don't we all just need one more social media network to keep track of? And like the man said, I send you out now like sheep among wolves, be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Good advice from a pretty good guy and a pretty good God. <laughs>